In 2016, the British National Environment Research Council asked the public to suggest and vote for names for what its newest ship that would explore the regions of Antarctica would be called. Over 7,000 names were submitted, and the name that far and away received the most votes was Bodie McBoatface, which is exactly the kind of thing that you're going to get when you ask the internet to weigh in on something. And I have to say, I love this name. If I'd known about this poll at the time, I would have gone online and voted for Bodie McBoatface twice. That's just perfect. But in the end, the leaders of this government organization said, of course we're not actually going to name a $250 million ship Bodie McBoatface. Instead, they played it safe and they gave it the more respectable name, the RRS Sir David Attenborough. And this move may disappoint us, but it shouldn't really surprise us. Because often, in the face of an opportunity to do something novel or a bit unorthodox, our more sensible instincts kick in and we make the more proper decision. We play it safe. And we choose not to color outside the lines. We recognize, yeah, that might be an interesting idea, but of course we're not actually going to do it. And you may not have noticed it throughout our study through the Book of Ruth, but this theme shows up again and again. The contrast between doing the proper and sensible thing and doing something a bit more unorthodox. And in this, we see God working for the good in spite of things not going exactly as they should have gone. Let's take a quick review of the book of Ruth and look for this theme. In each chapter in Ruth, there's an example of this coloring outside of the lines. In chapter one, Naomi encourages her daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah, to go back to their families and not return to Bethlehem with her. Orpah is an example of a sensible decision maker. She makes the most wise and, and most practical move, but Ruth doesn't. Ruth does the risky thing. She chooses the harder road and goes with Naomi. In chapter two, in an environment where everyone knows what the normal rules and boundaries are regarding the poor people gleaning in harvest fields, Ruth asks for an exception. She says, can I glean behind the harvesters? There's a lot more to be gleaned there. I got a mother-in-law I need to support. Can we do better than just the norm? In anyone else's field, she would have been run out and rejected. But instead, Boaz follows Ruth outside of those lines and says, yeah, we can do that. Then last week in chapter 3, we saw the unorthodox way that Naomi and Ruth asked Boaz to take Ruth as his wife. The proposal was made at night. It was made in private in an area that was off limits to Ruth. And it was done at great risk to Naomi and Ruth. But they did this because they knew that the usual channels for securing their future weren't available to them. And now in chapter 4, we're going to see the same thing. The sensible decision abandoned for the sake of chesed love. Boaz has agreed to redeem Elimelech's estate and to take Ruth as his wife, but first he has to clear it with Naomi's closer relative. Here's what happens. Boaz went to the town gate and took a seat there. Just then, the family redeemer he had mentioned came by. So Boaz called out to him, come over here and sit down, friend. I want to talk to you. So they sat down together. Then Boaz called 10 leaders from the town and asked them to sit as witnesses. And Boaz said to the family redeemer, you know Naomi, who came back from Moab, she's selling the land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should speak to you about it so that you can redeem it if you wish. If you want the land, then buy it here in the presence of these witnesses. But if you don't want it, let me know right away because I am next in line to redeem it after you. And the man replied, all right, I'll redeem it. 
This is a very different context than in chapter three on the threshing room floor. It's not private. It's the city gate. This is the most public, popular gathering spot. And Boaz calls these 10 officials there to serve as witnesses, making everything that happens on the record. Now, Boaz wants to give the guy a fair chance to redeem Elimelech's property because that's the right thing to do. Boaz is a good dude. He does the right thing. The offer that's made here is kind of like if you had the chance to buy a second home. You might think about it and go, yeah, maybe, maybe I can make that work, but it's definitely going to stretch my finances. And remember, there was a famine in Judah, so the land that these fields uh, that Elimelech owned were probably needing a lot of work. So it seems like the guy's leaning toward doing it. It seems like he's going to take on the responsibility. But now we already know that Boaz wants him to say no, so that Boaz himself can say yes. So watch how Boaz points out that this deal comes with some strings attached, specifically Ruth. Then Boaz told him, Of course, your purchase of the land from Naomi also requires that you marry Ruth, the Moabite widow. That way, she can have children who will carry on her husband's name and keep the land in the family. And the guy thinks, wait, what? Oh, uh, well, that kind of changes things. Uh, This was already kind of a stretch for me. You know, but if she has sons, then her kids get a share of the land. That's going to dilute my son's shares. You know what, Boaz, it's not worth it. I'll let you take it. Then I can't redeem it, the family redeemer replied, because this might endanger my own estate. You redeem the land. I cannot do it. Now, in those days, it was the custom in Israel for anyone transferring a right of purchase to remove his sandal and hand it to the other party. This publicly validated the transaction. So the other family redeemer drew off his sandal as he said to Boaz, you buy the land. Then Boaz said to the elders and the crowd standing around, you are witnesses that today I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. And with the land, I have acquired Ruth, the Moabite widow of Malon, to be my wife. This way she can have a son to carry on the family name of her dead husband and to inherit the family property here in his hometown. You are all witnesses today. Then the elders and all the people standing in the gate replied, We are witnesses. May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, from whom all the nation of Israel descended. May you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. And may the Lord give you descendants by this young woman who will be like those of our ancestor Perez, the son of Tamar and Judah. Like Orpah, the unnamed family redeemer does the sensible, practical thing. He decides he doesn't have the bandwidth to take on Elimelech's property and his son's widow and any descendants that there may be after that. He thinks, that's an interesting idea, but of course I'm not actually going to do it. Boaz, on the other hand, is willing to make that riskier decision for the sake of Ruth and Naomi and for the sake of Chesed. The book of Ruth begins with some very dire circumstances. Naomi loses everything and returns home depressed and defeated and just done. But after a series of unorthodox events and decisions, the story ends with Naomi holding her grandson in her arms. So Boaz took Ruth into his home and she became his wife. When he slept with her, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant, and she gave birth to a son. Then the women of the town said to Naomi, Praise the Lord who has now provided a redeemer for your family. May this child be famous in Israel. May he restore your youth and care for you in your old age. For he is the son of your daughter-in-law who loves you and has been better to you than seven sons. Naomi took the baby and cuddled him to her breast, and she cared for him as if he were her own. The neighbor women said, Now at last, Naomi has a son again. 
and they named him Obed, and he became the father of Jesse and the grandfather of David. And then Ruth ends with a genealogy that goes from Perez, the ancestor who was mentioned earlier, through Ruth, Boaz, and their son Obad, and on to King David, emphasizing that God uses the unorthodox circumstances and choices made by faithful people to bring about his redemption on a much larger scale. While we today may have a passing interest in our own ancestry, it was very important to the families that we read about in the Bible. It was another way of playing by the rules and coloring within the lines. If someone was legit, then their ancestry needed to be legit as well. But what we see in Ruth is that we get some less than pure-blooded folks represented. Boaz, we'll learn later, is the son of Rahab the prostitute, who was remembered for helping the Israelite spies escape capture. Not the best pedigree. And then Boaz marries Ruth, who's a foreigner from Moab. But Boaz and Ruth are the great-great-grandparents of the great King David. That's something. If we zoom out even farther, we see that Ruth's story plays a part in the genealogy of Jesus, too. The genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1 emphasizes these unorthodox participants in the family lineage that brings us all the way to Jesus himself, Israel's Messiah and the very Son of God. And Jesus' own life and ministry doesn't shy away from the unorthodox, either. Jesus is always coloring outside the lines and often teaches about doing more than just what is expected or going beyond what is sensible. You get a lot of these examples in the Sermon on the Mount. Just take a look at Matthew chapter 5. Everybody knew at the time that you should love your neighbor. Sure, love your neighbor. But Jesus says, I think we should even love our enemies going beyond what is expected. The sensible thing to do when someone wrongs you, everybody knew, was to get even. But Jesus says, what if instead we gave them more than what they took? What if we go the extra mile? What if we turn the other cheek? If they take your coat, give them your shirt too. Jesus' biggest conflicts were with the sensible orpas of his time, the Pharisees, these rule keepers, the people who had it all figured out. Jesus was constantly challenging them to realize that God does not conform to our expectations. God is not limited by our circumstances. God's not restricted by our social norms, but perhaps God is just excitedly waiting for us to break free from the things that hold us back so that we can do something worth remembering, like Boaz and like Ruth. Sometimes we get trapped in the practical world of life and faith, and we begin to think, this is the way things are done. We've got it all figured out. Anything else is either unnecessary or dangerous. And then our standard response to the Holy Spirit's inspiration in our lives becomes, yeah, it's an interesting idea, but of course I'm not actually going to do it. As I read Ruth and think about her great, 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 grandson Jesus' teachings, I have to ask myself, am I willing to color outside of the lines? Am I taking risks for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of chesed love, or am I just playing it safe? There's an ironic line in Ruth chapter 4. I don't know if you caught it. It's there in verse 6. I can't redeem it, the family redeemer said. Did you catch that? The family redeemer says, I can't redeem. It's like going to the pancake house and them saying, hey, guess what? We're all out of pancakes. But you're the pancake house. How is that possible? That doesn't work. So let's ask him, why won't you redeem Naomi and Ruth, Mr. So-called redeemer? Because this might endanger my own estate. You do it. I can't. My friend told me a story 
that when he was a kid, he was driving with his dad and they saw one of his friends getting beat up by some other kids. His dad pulled the car over and he said, you should get out and go help that kid. And my friend said to his dad, I can't, it's too dangerous. You go do it. Now in all these stories about making practical decisions, uh, my friend staying in the car, Orpah turning back to Moab and the family redeemer who doesn't actually redeem, the people here can't really be blamed for what they did. They weren't making bad decisions. They, they were actually smart decisions, and their lives were probably much safer because they made them. But my friend says about that incident, he really wishes he wasn't so scared while his dad got out of the car and went to help his friend. He wishes that he had done it. And while Orpah's decision was a good one, we see that Ruth's decision was better. And while the family redeemer in name only made a wise decision that day at the gate, Boaz's decision is the one that we celebrate. So what do we do with this? I'm not advocating going out and just randomly making reckless decisions or breaking laws or doing everything you can think of that's unsafe. But I do want to let the story of Ruth remind us of how valuable it is when someone is willing to risk and sacrifice for the sake of someone else. Lisa's reading a book with Molly and Ellie right now called Kisses from Katie. It's about a girl named Katie who went to Uganda after graduating high school so that she could teach preschool for a year. She made this year-long commitment to go and live there and help out. But while she was there, she saw so much need among children who couldn't afford school or who didn't have parents in their lives uh, who could care for them. She started getting involved and she started raising money for them. Then she started a nonprofit whose goal was to provide education and medical attention to these kids in need. Then she decided she was gonna stay in Uganda. And then she started adopting these kids. Eventually, Katie adopted 16 children, and she's financially responsible for 200 more. Once a week, these 200 kids all come over to her house, and she feeds them, and she bathes them, since her house is the only one for miles around with running water. Isn't that awesome? Isn't this a beautiful, inspiring picture of the same chesed that we see in Ruth? Katie doesn't say, I can't, it's too dangerous. Instead, she has a crazy what-if idea, and she follows through with it. Now, Uganda might not be in your future, but the point is, when God calls you in a way that requires you to change your normal routine, do you say, that's an interesting idea, but of course I'm not actually going to do it. Or do you say, Lord, where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. So the RRS Sir David Attenborough never actually made it to Antarctica. There were delays with its construction, its sea trials kept getting pushed back, and it's not scheduled to start its maiden voyage to Antarctica until late next year. That boat that they spent so much time finding the perfect name for is just sitting in a harbor somewhere. Now, I know that these delays are not due to the more practical name that they chose for the ship, but I still can't help but wonder if Bodie McBoatface would be down there right now exploring exciting new things and doing good work if they just gave him a chance. So what crazy ideas has God put in your head lately? What risks is he calling you to take? Maybe God's message for you today is don't discount something just because it's unorthodox. Or maybe it's take a risk or get in the game. I encourage you sometime this week, talk about this with someone. Call on the leaders here at Tri-Valley to help you pray about what this means in your life. We'd love to help you in any way that we can. 
by nature, Christians are an unorthodox little band. We believe that God became human. We believe that Jesus was crucified and was buried, but that there was an empty tomb on the third day. And we follow Jesus into a life that often goes against what is practical and what is safe. But we do it with joy and with the hope and trust that God is good. Next week, I'm starting a December series that's going to lead us right up to Christmas called The Gift of Rest. We're going to look at a biblical view of rest and why God wants us to rest safely in the knowledge that he is with us. I encourage you to participate in this and to invite your friends and your neighbors to join us here online. You can entice them with the beautiful traditional Christmas songs that we're going to sing together and with a joyful message to slow down and enjoy God's good creation as we explore what it means to sleep in heavenly peace. Let me close us out with a prayer. God, we thank you so much for the message of Ruth, for the gospel message of hope and of your salvation, of your redemption that we find in it. God, I pray that you will give us courage, that you will give us your Holy Spirit's eyes to see opportunities that are there. And then a courageous spirit that's willing to step out and to do things that maybe are riskier than we're comfortable with or new or haven't been done before. And we pray that we do all of these things for the sake of your kingdom so that more and more people can know of your chesed, your genuine sacrificial love that you've shown us in Jesus Christ. God, your love is so good. And we thank you so much that we can know about it and that we can be your children. Pray a blessing on anyone who hears this message that you send them out for your purposes. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.